0: Chapter Ten, Parts One to Three of *The Passionate Friends* by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Eastman. Chapter the Tenth, Mary Writes. One. It was in the early spring of 1909 that I had a letter from Mary. By that time, my life was set fully upon its present courses. Gidding and I had passed from the stage of talking and scheming to definite undertakings. Indeed, by 1909, things were already organized upon their present lines. We had developed a huge publishing establishment, with one big printing plant in Barcelona and another in Manchester, and we were studying the peculiar difficulties that might attend the establishment of a third plant in America. Our company was an English company, under the name of Alphabet and Molentrov, and we were rapidly making it the broadest and steadiest flow of publication the world had ever seen. Its streams already reached further, and carried more than any single firm had ever managed to do before. We were reprinting, in as carefully edited and revised editions as we could, the whole of the English, Spanish, and French literature, and we were only waiting for the release of machinery to attack German, Russian, and Italian, and were giving each language, not only its own, but a very complete series of good translations of the classical writers in every other tongue. We had a little band of editors and translators permanently in our service at each important literary center. We had, for example, more than a score of men at work translating Bengali fiction and verse into English, A lot of that new literature is wonderfully illuminating to an intelligent Englishman. And we had a couple of men hunting about for new work in Arabic. We meant to give so good and cheap a book, and to be so comprehensive in our choice of books, excluding nothing, if only it was real and living, on account of any inferiority of quality, obscurity of subject, or narrowness of demand, that in the long run, anybody, anywhere, desiring to read anything, would turn naturally and inevitably to our lists. Ours was to be, in the first place, a world literature. Then afterwards, upon its broad currents of distribution, and in the same forms, we meant to publish new work and new thought. We were also planning an encyclopedia. Behind our enterprise of translations and reprints, we were getting together and putting out a series of guidebooks, gazetteers, dictionaries, textbooks, and books of reference. And we were organizing a revising staff for these, a staff that should be constantly keeping them up to date. It was our intention to make every copy we printed bear the date of its last revision in a conspicuous place. And we hoped to get the whole line of these books ultimately upon an annual basis, and to sell them upon repurchasing terms. That would enable us to issue a new copy and take back and send the old one to the pulping mill at a narrow margin of profit. Then we meant to spread our arms wider and consolidate and offer our whole line of textbooks, guidebooks, and gazetteers, bibliographies, atlases, dictionaries, and directories, as a new world encyclopedia that should also annually, or at longest biennially, renew its youth. So far we had gone in the creation of a huge international organ of information, and of a kind of gigantic modern Bible of world literature. And in the process of its distribution we were rapidly acquiring an immense detailed knowledge of the book and publishing trade, finding congestions here, neglected opportunities there, and devising and drawing up a hundred schemes for relief, assistance, amalgamation and rearrangement, We had branches in China, Japan, Peru, Iceland, and a thousand remote places that would have sounded as far off as the moon to an English or American bookseller in the seventies. China, in particular, was a growing market. We had a subsidiary company running a flourishing line of bookshops in the east end of London, and others in New Jersey, Chicago, Buenos Aires, the south of France, and Ireland. Incidentally, we had bought up some thousands of miles of Labrador Forest to insure our paper supply. And we could believe that before we died there would not be a corner of the world in which any book of interest or value whatever would not be easily attainable by any intelligent person who wanted to read it. And already we were taking up the more difficult and ambitious phase of our self-appointed task, and considering the problem— of using these channels we were mastering and deepening and supplementing for the stimulation and wide diffusion of contemporary thought. There we went outside the province of Alphabet and Molentrov, and into an infinitely subtler system of interests. We wanted to give sincere and clear-thinking writers encouragement and opportunity, to improve the critical tribunal, and make it independent of advertising interests so that there would be a readier welcome for luminous thinking and writing and a quicker explosion of intellectual imposture we sought to provide guides and intelligencers to contemporary thought we had already set up or subsidized or otherwise aided a certain number of magazines and periodicals that seemed to us independent-spirited outspoken and well handled but we had still to devise our present scheme of financing groups of men to create magazines and newspapers which became their own separate but inalienable property after so many years of success but all this i hope you will already have become more or less familiar with when the story reaches your hands and i hope by the time it does so we shall be far beyond our present stage of experiment and that you will have come naturally to play your part in this most fascinating business of maintaining an onward intellectual movement in the world, a movement not simply independent of, but often running counter to, all sorts of political and financial interests. I tell you this much here, for you to understand, that already in 1909, and considering the business side of my activities alone, I was a hard worker, and very strenuously employed and in addition to all this huge network of enterprises I had developed with Gidding, I was still pretty actively a student. I wasn't, I never shall be, absolutely satisfied with my general ideas. I was inquiring keenly and closely into those problems of group and crowd psychology from which all this big publishing work has arisen, and giving particular attention to the war panics and outbreaks of international hostility That were then passing in deepening waves across Europe. I had already accumulated a mass of notes for the book upon, Group Jealousy in Religious Persecution, Racial Conflicts, and War, which I hope to publish the year after next, and which therefore I hope you will have read long before this present book can possibly come to you. And moreover, Rachel and I had established our home in London. In the house we now occupy during the winter and spring. And both you and your little sister had begun your careers as inhabitants of this earth. Your little sister had indeed but just begun. And then, one morning at the breakfast table, I picked a square envelope out of a heap of letters and saw the half-forgotten and infinitely familiar handwriting of Lady Mary Justin the sight of it gave me an odd mixture of sensations. I was startled. I was disturbed. I was a little afraid. I hadn't forgiven her yet. It needed but this touch to tell me how little I had forgotten. Two. I sat with it in my hand for a moment or so before I opened it, hesitating as one hesitates before a door that may reveal a dramatic situation. Then I pushed my chair a little back from the table, and ripped the envelope. It was a far longer letter than Mary had ever written me in the old days, and in a handwriting as fine as ever, but now rather smaller. I have it still, and here I open its worn folds, and except for a few trifling omissions, copy it out for you. A few trifling omissions, I say. Just one there is that is not trifling, but that I must needs make. You will never see any of these letters, because I shall destroy them so soon as this copy is made. It has been difficult, or I should have destroyed them before. But some things can be too hard for us. This first letter is on the Marden's notepaper. Its very heading was familiar to me. The handwriting of the earlier sentences is a little stiff and disjointed, and there are one or two scribbled obliterations. It is like someone embarrassed in speaking. And then it passes into her usual and characteristic ease and as I read, slowly my long-cherished anger evaporated, and the real Mary, outspoken and simple, whom I had obscured by a cloud of fancied infidelities, returned to me. "'My dear Stephen,' she begins, "'about six weeks ago I saw in the times that you have a little daughter. It set me thinking, picturing you with the might of a baby in your arms.' "'What little things they are, Stephen!' And your old face bent over it, so that presently I went to my room and cried. It set me thinking about you, so that I have at last written you this letter. I love to think of you with wife and children about you, Stephen. I heard of your son for the first time about a year ago, but—don't mistake me—something rings me, too. "'Well,' I, too, have children. Have you ever thought of me as a mother? I am. I wonder how much you know about me now. I have two children, and the youngest is just two years old. And somehow it seems to me that now that you and I have both given such earnests of our good behavior, such evidence that that side of life anyhow is effectually settled for us, there is no reason remaining why we shouldn't correspond you are my brother stephen and my friend and my twin and the core of my imagination fifty babies cannot alter that we can live but once and then die and promise or no promise i will not be dead any longer in your world when i'm not dead nor will i have you if i can help it a cold unanswering corpse in mine too much of my life and being stephen has been buried and I am in rebellion. This is a breach of the tomb, if you like, an irregular, private, premature resurrection from an interment in error. Out of my alleged grave I poke my head and say hello to you. Stephen, old friend, dear friend, how are you getting on? What is it like to you? How do you feel? I want to know about you. I'm not doing this at all furtively. "'And you can write back to me, Stephen, as openly as your heart desires. "'I have told Justin I should do this. "'I rise, you see, blowing my own trump. "'Let the other graves do as they please. "'Your letters will be respected, Stephen, "'if you choose to rise also and write me a letter. Stephen, I've been wanting to do this for... for all the time.' if there was thought-reading, you would have had a thousand letters. But formerly I was content to submit, and latterly I've chafed more. I think that as what they call passion has faded, the immense friendliness has become more evident, and made the bar less and less justifiable. You and I have had so much between us, beyond what somebody the other day—it was in a report in the Times, I think "'was calling Materia Matrimoniala. "'And, of course, I hear about you from all sorts of people, "'and in all sorts of ways. "'Whatever you have done about me, "'I've had a woman's sense of honor about you, "'and I've managed to learn a great deal "'without asking forbidden questions. "'I've pricked up my ears at the faintest echo of your name.' "'They say you have become a publisher "'with an American partner,' a sort of harmsworth and nelson and times book club and hooper and jackson all rolled into one that seems so extraordinary to me that for that alone i should have had to write to you i want to know the truth of that i never see any advertisement of stradden and company or get any inkling of what it is you publish are you the power behind the respectable murgatroyd and the honest milvane i know them both and neither has the slightest appearance of being animated by you and equally perplexing is your being mixed up with an american like that man gidding in peace conferences and social reform congresses and so forth it's so carnegieish there i'm sure because i've seen your name in reports of meetings and i've read your last two papers in the fortnightly i can't imagine you of all people with your touch of reserve Launching into movements and rubbing shoulders with faddists. What does it mean, Stephen? I had expected to find you coming back into English politics, speaking and writing on the lines of your old beginning, taking up that work you dropped. It's six years now ago. I've been accumulating disappointment for two years. Mr. Arthur, you see on our side. This, you will remember, was in 1909 still steers our devious party courses and the tariff reformers have still to capture us weston massingay was comparing them the other night at a dinner at the clines to a crowded piratical galley trying to get alongside a good seaman in rough weather he was very funny about leo maxey in the poop white and shrieking with passion and the motion and all the capitalists armed to the teeth, and hiding snug in the hold, until the grappling-irons were fixed. Why haven't you come into the game? I'd hoped it, if only for the sake of meeting you again. What are you doing out beyond there? We are in it so far as I can contrive, but I contrive very little. We are pillars of the Conservative Party— on that Justin's mind is firmly settled. And every now and then I clamor urgently that we must do more for it. But Justin's ideas go no further than writing cheques. Doing more for the party means writing a bigger cheque. And there are moments when I feel we shall simply bring down a peerage upon our heads, and bury my ancient courtesy title under the ignominy of a new creation. He would certainly accept it he writes his check and turns back at the earliest opportunity to his miniature gardens and the odd little freaks of collecting that attract him have you ever heard of chintz oil jars no you will say nor has anyone else yet except our immediate circle of friends and a few dealers who are no doubt industriously increasing the present scanty supply we possess 3 they are matronly-shaped jars about two feet or a yard high of a kind of terra-cotta with wooden tops surmounted by gilt acorns and they have been covered with white paint and on this flowers and birds and figures from some very rich old chintz have been stuck very cunningly and then everything has been varnished and there you are our first and best was bought for seven and sixpence brought home in the car put upon a console-table on the second landing, and worshipped. It's really a very pleasant mellow thing to see. Nobody had ever seen the like. Guests, sycophantic people of all sorts, were taken to consider it. It was looked at with heads at every angle. One man even kept his head erect. And one went a little upstairs, and looked at it under his arm. Also, the most powerful lenses have been used for a minute examination, and one expert licked the varnish, and looked extremely thoughtful and wise at me, as he turned the booty over his gifted tongue. And now, God being with us, we mean to possess every specimen in existence, before the Americans get hold of the idea. Yesterday, Justin got up and motored sixty miles to look at an alleged fourth. Oh, my dear, I am writing chatter. You perceive I've reached the chattering stage. It is the fated end of the clever woman in a good social position nowadays. Her mind beats against her conditions for the last time, and breaks up into this carping talk, this spume of observation and comment, this anecdotal natural history of the restraining husband, as waves burst out their hearts in a foam upon a reef but it isn't chatter I want to write to you. Stephen, I'm intolerably wretched. No creature has ever been gladder to have been born than I was for the first five and twenty years of my life. I was full of hope, and I was full, I suppose, of vanity and rash confidence. I thought I was walking on solid earth, with my head reaching up to the clouds, and that sea, and sky, and all mankind were mine for the smiling. And I am nothing, and worse than nothing. I am the ineffectual mother of two children—a daughter whom I adore, but of her I may not tell you—and a son—a son who is too like his father for any fury of worship—a stolid little creature. That is all I have done in the world—a mere blink of maternity. AND MY BLUE PERSIAN, WHO IS SCARCELY TWO YEARS OLD, HAS ALREADY HAD NINE kittens. MY HUSBAND AND I HAVE NEVER FORGIVEN EACH OTHER THE INDEFINABLE WRONG OF NOT PLEASING EACH OTHER. THAT EMBITTERS MORE AND MORE. TO TAKE IT OUT OF EACH OTHER IS OUR ROLE. I HAVE DONE MY DUTY TO THE GREAT NEW LINE OF JUSTIN BY GIVING IT THE AIR IT NEEDED, AND NOW A POLITE AND SILENT SEPARATION HAS FALLEN BETWEEN US. We hardly speak except in company. I have not been so much married, Stephen, I find, as collected, and since our tragic misadventure. But there were beautiful moments, Stephen, unforgettable glimpses of beauty in that. Thank God, I say, impenitently for that. The door of the expensively splendid cabinet that contains me, when it is not locked, is very discreetly watched. I have no men friends, no social force, no freedom to take my line. My husband is my official obstacle. We barb the limitations of life for one another. A little while ago he sought to chasten me, to rouse me rather, through jealousy, and made me aware, indirectly but a little defiantly, of a young person of artistic gifts, in whose dramatic career he was pretending a conspicuous interest. I was jealous and roused, but scarcely in the way he desired. This, I said quite cheerfully, means freedom for me, Justin. And the young woman vanished from the visible universe with an incredible celerity. I hope she was properly paid off, and not simply made away with by a minion. But I become more and more aware of my ignorance of a great financier's methods, as I become more and more aware of them. Stephen, my dear, my brother! I am intolerably unhappy. I do not know what to do with myself, or what there is to hope for in life. I am like a prisoner in a magic cage, and I do not know the word that will release me. How is it with you? Are you unhappy beyond measure, or are you not? And if you are not, what are you doing with life? Have you found any secret "'that makes living tolerable and understandable. "'Write to me, write to me at least, and tell me that. "'Please write to me. "'Do you remember how long ago you and I sat in the old park at Burnmore? "'And how I kept pestering you, and asking you, what is all this for? "'And you looked at the question as an obstinate mule looks at a narrow bridge "'he could cross, but doesn't want to.' Well, Stephen, you've had nearly, how many years is it now, to get an answer ready? What is it all for? What do you make of it? Never mind my particular case, or the case of Women with a capital W. Tell me your solution. You are active, you keep doing things, you find life worth living. Is publishing a way of peace for the heart? I AM PREPARED TO BELIEVE EVEN THAT. BUT JUSTIFY YOURSELF. TELL ME WHAT YOU HAVE GOT THERE TO KEEP YOUR SOUL ALIVE. Three. I READ THIS LETTER TO THE END, AND LOOKED UP. AND THERE WAS MY HOME ABOUT ME. A ROOM RUDDY BROWN AND FAMILIAR, WITH A ROW OF OLD PEWTER THINGS UPON THE DRESSER the steel engravings of former Strattons that came to me from my father, a convex mirror exaggerating my upturned face. And Rachel, just risen again, sat at the other end of the table, a young mother, fragile and tender-eyed. The clash of these two systems of reality was amazing. It was as though I had not been parted from Mary for a day, as though all that separation and all that cloud of bitter jealousy had been a mere silence between two people in the same room. Indeed, it was extraordinarily like that, as if I had been sitting at a desk, imagining myself alone, reading my present life as one reads in a book at a shaded lamp. And then suddenly that silent other had spoken. And then I looked at the page of my life before me, and became again a character in the story. I met the enquiry in Rachel's eyes. "'It's a letter from Mary Justin,' I said. She did not answer for a few moments. She became interested in the flame of the little spirit-lamp that kept her coffee hot. She finished what she had to do with that, and then remarked, "'I thought you two were not to correspond.' "'Yes,' I said, putting the letter down. That was the understanding there was a little interval of silence. And then I got up and went to the fireplace where the bacon and sausages stood upon a trivet. I suppose, said Rachel, she wants to hear from you again. She thinks that now we have children, and that she has two, we can consider what was past past and closed and done with, and she wants to hear about me. Apart from everything else, we were very great friends." of course said rachel with lips a little awry of course you must have been great friends and it's natural for her to write i suppose she added her husband knows she's told him she says her eye fell on the letter in my hand for the smallest fraction of a second and it was as if hastily she snatched away a thought from my observation I had a moment of illuminating embarrassment. So far we had contrived to do as most young people do when they marry. We had sought to make our lives unreservedly open to one another. We had affected an entire absence of concealments about our movements, our thoughts. If perhaps I had been largely silent to her about Mary, it was not so much that I sought to hide things from her as that I myself sought to forget. It is one of the things that we learn too late, the impossibility of any such rapid and willful coalescence of souls. But we had maintained a convention of infinite communism since our marriage. We had shown each other our letters as a matter of course, shared the secrets of our friends, gone everywhere together as far as we possibly could. I wanted now to give her the letter in my hand to read— and to do so was manifestly impossible. Something had arisen between us that made out of our unity two abruptly separated figures, masked and veiled. Here were things I knew and understood completely, and that I could not even describe to Rachel. What would she make of Mary's Write to me, write to me? A mere wish to resume... I would not risk the exposure of Mary's mind and heart and unhappiness to her possible misinterpretation. That letter fell indeed, like a pitiless searchlight, into all that region of differences ignored, over which we had built the vaulted convention of our complete mutual understanding. In my memory, it seems to me now as though we hung silent for quite a long time over the evasions that were there so abruptly revealed. Then I put the letter into my pocket with a clumsy assumption of carelessness, and knelt down to the fender and sausages. It will be curious, I said, to write to her again, to tell her about things. And then, with immense interest, Are these Chichester sausages you've got here, Rachel, or some new kind? Rachel roused herself to respond with an equal affectation, and we made an eager conversation about bacon and sausages. For after that startling gleam of divergence, we were both anxious to get back to the superficialities of life again. End of chapter 10, parts 1 to 3.